This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change. This is Katherine Klein. I am delighted to be speaking today with Cheryl Dorsey, who is the president of Echoing Green. Cheryl is a leader in social entrepreneurship, a trailblazer, much uh, awarded for her leadership in this space. I uh, prominently have worked on uh, with many boards, many organizations, been a member of the uh, a White House fellow, a member of uh, two presidential administrations. And um, I will say as a, uh, as, a, as a Wharton faculty member, I'm just looking at all these Harvard degrees, Harvard Medical School, Harvard <laughs> Kennedy School, Harvard Radcliffe Colleges, There's a lot of Harvard degrees here as well. Uh, so Cheryl, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's great to talk with you. Same here, Catherine. Really honored to be with you. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. So uh, at Wharton, I lead the uh, Wharton Social Impact Initiative. We have many uh, business school students and faculty, as you know, who are passionate about social impact, social innovation. Uh, and, and Echoing Green is a familiar organization, but I'm really looking forward to digging in. So tell us, what is Echoing Green? What do you do? Well, uh, Echoing Green, as you mentioned, it, it, it has been a pioneer um, and, and pillar and anchor organization in, in the field of social innovation. We're an early stage funder of emerging best-in-class social entrepreneurs, Catherine. So our job is to go out and source uh, next-gen talent, vet it, and then invest in it and help it to um, grow and scale. We really do take uh, a very focused and intentional approach on identifying and supporting the leader of that social enterprise uh, because we really do believe that by developing a cadre of best-in-class leaders, that's a direct pathway to driving um, positive social change. And you are uh, funding and supporting, mentoring, sponsoring these uh, the leaders of these social enterprises. Um, I think you use the term typically social entrepreneur to describe these people. Can you define this term? Because frankly, we struggle with defining social enterprises and social entrepreneurs. No, I think that's right. And again, I think that's not unusual in um, a field that is still fairly young, right? So most people sort of uh, trace the origins of the field of social entrepreneurship, social innovation back to 1980, um, when two um, key organizations were founded, one being Ashoka, which was all about identifying this newfangled social sector actor called the social entrepreneur who was um, identifying and um, scaling ideas to drive positive social change. And then um, New Ventures, I think that's the right name, um, started um, by Ed Skloot to basically focus on the sustainability of social enterprises and nonprofits. And sort of those two streams of work over the years have come together um, to be what we identify today as social innovation. And just very simply, um, social innovation is what we consider to be the process of developing and deploying effective solutions to challenging and often systemic social and environmental issues uh, in support of social progress. I should be clear, 
that the work of social innovation is a broader concept, but does include um, the work of social entrepreneurs. So social innovation is the entire system um, of which the work of social entrepreneurs is a part. So quite often, you know, people will point to some very successful examples of um, social innovation, which would include um, microfinance, right? Um, the fair trade movement um, in this country, sort of the charter school movement. Um, but fundamentally, I think sort of the zeitgeist of social innovation, Catherine, is this notion of the blurring of so sectoral boundaries, right? It's sort of bringing together civil society, the market, and the state in a way that creates new and shared public value. Um, so that was kind of a mouthful, but I think the key takeaways are it's still a, a, a new but growing and increasingly robust field. And fundamentally, it's about how do you use innovation as a disruptive tool to accelerate the pace of social change? Right. No, that's helpful. That is helpful. And, and I think it's probably useful to say, as uh, I think you all do, that you don't necessarily um, well, distinguish or prefer for-profit versus non-profit structures. The goal is really social innovation that is long-lasting, high-impact, and sustainable. Is that is that accurate? Oh, that's that's absolutely right. You know, Echoing Green in particular um, has always been agnostic about um, what we fund, um, where we fund in the world, or the corporate form um, that that. Uh, leader presents to us when she applies to the fellowship. The only thing that is sort of non-negotiable is do we believe we are seeing um, a best-in-class, high-impact leader of promise who's got a really interesting, innovative idea to drive significant social change? It's interesting for the duration of our history, we're about 35 years old now, most of our applicants and fellows um, have come into the network um, running pretty traditional nonprofits, right? They've got a 501c3 um, form. But starting in 2006, it was the first year that we saw a significant number of applicants proposing for-profit, you know, double bottom line or social, uh, triple bottom line social enterprises. About 15% of our applicant pool that year in 2006. Each year, subsequently, Catherine, we've seen an uptick to the point that about 50% of our applicant pool every year does indeed propose these for-profit um, uh, uh, corporate forms. Uh, and I think, you know, it just speaks to the fact that a lot of these young next-gen leaders recognize that there's simply not enough philanthropic capital um, to solve our social and environmental problems at scale. So recognizing how to crowd in different forms of capital um, to um, engage in the work of social impact, really um, one of the key um, and enduring trends of the social innovation space today. So um, you receive many applications. Talk to us about this, this the, the process. You receive many applications. Who are these people? They're from all over the world. Your acceptance rate is, uh, is, is very small. Um, uh, give us some specifics of that. And, and how are you selecting these, these fellows? And then once they're selected, what happens to them? But let's, let's first start kind of with the application, with the, the top of the funnel. Yeah, sure. I mean, the application process is something um, that we continue um, to iterate on and try to better. Um, and by that, I mean, you sort of make a more generous, open, equitable, inclusive process. I think Echoing Green 
from its founding principles, has always um, believed in believing the entrepreneur, right? So believing talent and trying to deconstruct and dismantle the um, inevitable power dynamics between funder and potential grantee or recipient. So um, we believe in our entrepreneurs. So we try to um, build a, a really robust outreach process, sort of inviting people to essentially share their hopes and dreams uh, with us and then um, make it very clear um, that we will give them a fair, open, and uh, generous hearing um, to just share how they think they can change the world. Um, we, in many ways, sort of crowdsource our vetting process, Catherine, really believing in the wisdom of the crowds, where every year we engage upwards of 800 volunteers from all over the world who spend you know, their limited and precious free time helping us sort of read through and evaluate these um, applications that come to us from, you know, 160 countries around the world. We certainly do privilege the voices and the input and insight of our fellows um, because they know Echoing Green, they know the community, they know full well the journey of what it means to be a social entrepreneur. So we very much incorporate sort of a peer-led, peer-to-peer vetting process um, that allows applicants over the course of about six months to share um, their ideas and continue to share more and more about their ideas. So in many ways, we're walking along their early stage development business model um, journey with them throughout the couple of stages of the application, which include sort of two rounds of a written application, um, which we do believe helps them refine and hone their idea. We're not trying to make the application onerous. We want it to be additive to help them on their journey, regardless of whether they become an Equine Green Fellow. And then the final step of the process is the ability um, to meet in person uh, these wonderful applicants. Obviously, in an era of a pandemic, Catherine, the in-person um, opportunity uh, to spend some time with these folks is not possible, but um, we've shifted that process virtually to the best of our ability. And through conversations over the course of a couple of hours, um, hopefully getting to know sort of the spirit and the soul of these entrepreneurs and pressure testing some of these ideas, have to make the very tough decision of, of whom um, we invest our very limited resources. So it is a it is a journey, it is a process, but we think um, through this relational process, we um, are able to select some terrific early stage leaders that we believe we can walk alongside as they try to launch these enterprises. And again, I mentioned that we're very much focused on the leader. We've got sort of a rubric, um, a scoring criteria that has about four criteria um, uh, through which we evaluate the leader and three or four um, criteria through which we evaluate the enterprise. We take much more seriously and weight much more hev heavily the leadership potential, right? Because again, we believe in the power of talent to drive change around the world. So looking at everything from how passionate um, the entrepreneur is about the work. We believe in many ways that passion is the, the catalytic fuel that allows her to do the work she needs to do despite all the um, roadblocks that will be in her way, which brings us to the second quality that we're trying to suss out, resilience, right? We know that failure is a significant part of the entrepreneurial journey. We actually I think failure is an important part of the 
learning process. So it's not if you fail, it's what you do once you fail. How do you sort of get yourself back up and dust yourself off? And then a quality that we see time and time again in the Echoing Green Network, which we talk about is resource magnetism. It is a different um, quality than charisma. It's it's really about sort of the stickiness of the leader, um, recognizing that these leaders are, are part of and are building social movements. So their ability to attract various forms of support to their cause, whether it be financial support, volunteer support, media attention, their ability um, to, to be to draw in um, and mobilize the levels of support is a really important quality for the work that they're trying to do. And then, you know, we know that these are very early stage folks, Catherine. So we don't put too much weight on the business model because we know as soon as the ink is dry or the last mm-hmm. click of a uh, of a document is, is typed, it is um, dated. So we're just looking for the ability of them to be thoughtful to respond to external um, factors and to be able to iterate, iterate, iterate as they're trying to build their enterprise. So, uh, wow, you said so much there. Uh, fantastic. I love these uh, so much. I want to unpack a few things and, and underscore a few points. You know, you talked about uh, their passion, their resilience in the face of failure, their resource magnetism, and not so much the, uh, you know, the, the enterprise business model. You know, you're looking for the talent. Uh, at least as much as the actual organization. And that's a familiar theme from venture capital. We often hear that, you know, that we're, we're betting on the entrepreneur, not necessarily the, uh, the initial product or plan. Um, two other things I wanted to uh, ask you about and comment on. One is just some of the, the numbers. Uh, you know, my understanding is you are getting, you know, 2,000, to 2,500 applications and ultimately selecting about one or 2% of these folks um, for a, a class of, you know, a small, a small class. So give us the, give us the numbers. Yes. Yeah, so typically we will get um, probably more like 3,000 or so submissions, as I mentioned, from a, about 160 countries around the world. Um, it is a very large funnel, um, and sadly, you know, the, the acceptance rate is so low, and that is not at all uh, to say that we could not fund more of these terrific applicants, right. Catherine. We certainly could, but there's some sort of um, titration and calibration you have to do in terms of the amount of funding that we're able to raise each year. We are not an endowed organization. We're a nonprofit, so each year we've got to go out and raise the money that we then deploy as um, an intermediary organization. But also there's something to be said about how do you manage and engage um, cohorts of entrepreneurs to ensure that you're able to support them to the best of your ability. And there's always more that we could do, but um, there, it is hard sometimes to think about economies of scale when you're trying to best support very, very early stage innovators who need a lot of support and not just financial support. And a typical cohort is how large? Um, a typical cohort is anywhere from 20 to 30. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So again, there's something about um, the power of walking um, together with your fellow entrepreneurs. It is a terribly lonely um, journey to be an entrepreneur. And sometimes finding others who understand exactly what you're going through because they're going through some of the same experiences and the ability to share information, to commiserate, to celebrate, to support one another. I literally cannot underscore how critical that peer support is. Right. 
Uh, and I was going to also use, use the pronoun she generically. These, these are men and women, and they are from all over the world. Uh, so a, a really a, a, a remarkably diverse class of, of, uh, of fellows. And they're getting financial support in addition to this mentoring to support them in their journey. That's exactly right. We, um, you know, Echoing Green um, since inception has now funded about 900 or so social entrepreneurs who are working in around 90 countries around the world. Um, but relative to other of our colleagues in the space, um, we um, probably have the most diverse cohort of social innovators. So um, especially when you look at our portfolio over the last decade, about 75% of our U.S.-based fellows are people of color, about 75% of our folks globally are proximate, sort of truly of and um, from the communities they serve, and about half are women. Um, it's been an interesting trend in the social innovation space. Um, sort of um, gender equity has been an issue across uh, many of the organizations in our space. I think in part that sort of the the masculine frame of entrepreneurship in general, sort of the machismo, the um, hard charging nature, just sort of um, the, the zeitgeist of the work, which um, has been, I think, um, uh, not welcoming enough to um, the terrific women entrepreneurs that we certainly see across the landscape. Um, so we have really worked hard to create an inclusive community, um, but as always have more um, work to do. But in terms of what the fellowship offers, um, we value sort of the goods and support and services at about $250,000 in cash and in-kind support um, over two years. It's about um, a small amount of, of, of uh, angel investment, about eighty to 90000 over the two years. That is not a lot of money, obviously, but it is completely unrestricted risk capital for that entrepreneur to deploy as she sees fit, which in the early stages is super important. And then we work really hard to embed them deeply in the Equine Green Network so fellows can support one another, but also we can connect them across our broader network of investors, philanthropists, thought leaders, media partners. So we work hard to create this supportive, enabling ecosystem, which, you know, at its best and highest use is truly a rising tide that should lift all boats. Fantastic. I, I want to note that you yourself were an Echoing Green Fellow in uh, almost 20 years ago and and, uh, and then have obviously gone on to become the, the president of Echoing Green. Um, and I have so many questions for you. But let's start with, <laughs> and I know we don't have all that much time, but, you know, at a high level, what's changed? What has changed as you think back over the last 20 years? You can take a shorter window in and the kinds of organizations that you're seeing, the issues that you're seeing, what what has changed in the, this field of uh, social entrepreneurship and the applicants you're getting, the people you're selecting? That's a great question. Yeah, and it's been really interesting to have this bird's eye view of the evolution and growth um, of the field. Certainly what we talked about a little earlier in terms of the growing number of for-profit or hybrid enterprises, um, which I think, again, uh, what I shared earlier is in part the analysis that the pool of philanthropic capital simply isn't sufficient enough to drive the kind of change we need to see across society. But I also think it's um, um, a nod to the popularity of social innovation that has penetrated settings like yours, so business schools, 
um, communities where um, business leaders are recognizing um, that, uh, you know, an impact um, approach is vital, recognizing that, um, you know, part of the work of society is to reduce the negative externalities that um, businesses and other um, uh, sectors throw off. And, you know, if you can sort of prevent that from the start and sort of build organizations that do, in fact, think about their um, social impact, their environmental footprint, as well as um, their um, financial um, outlook, that is a more sustainable approach for sure. So I think that's one of the key trends in our sector. And I do think also sort of, I would say the democratization of social innovation um, is also a new trend. The origins of social innovation in many ways um, happened at places like Wharton, at Penn, sort of in elite spaces that in its early years really engaged a particular type of student, a person, a person of privilege um, who had access to um, university resources, to capital, to the principles and practices of social innovation. And as it has become increasingly a clarion call for people who recognize that um, the solutions, the frameworks, the structures of the 20th century are just not working for enough of us, it has engaged and um, emboldened a broader set of stakeholders, which I think is terrific. So more people from more parts of the world across generations, across boundaries have gotten engaged in the work. And I think that's really um, exciting to see. And then I think the last thing is that there's been, um, you know, a real professionalization of the field, which you would expect to see where you've got um, not only professionalization, but bureaucratization of um, regulatory structures, um, talent pipelines, um, you know, place-based work that's starting to spring up around creating social impact ecosystems. I think these are all interesting trends, and um, I think they will only continue because the field seems to be um, exploding, uh, especially in this moment um, when so many of us realize that so little is working for, right. for um, people around the globe. Right. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I know that you have been outspoken in, in speaking about uh, uh, inequities, racial disparities in funding, uh, gender disparities in funding of social entrepreneurs, uh, not only in the United States, but a around the world. And, um, uh, and, and, I, and I hope you can tell us just a little bit about the collaboration that was just announced with Goldman Sachs. Uh, to support Black women social entrepreneurs. Uh, also, I would note an interesting, uh, um, when you spoke about places of privilege, obviously Goldman Sachs is a place of real privilege. Um, and I'm glad they're contributing to this work. So tell us about this partnership. Absolutely. So I appreciate you first uh, mentioning research that we um, launched a number of years ago with our friends from the Bridge Band Group, um, one of the leading nonprofit consulting firms uh, in our sector. And we went to our friends at Bridge Band a number of years ago because uh, we had long seen funding disparities of many of our fellows um, 
who we knew to be best in class next generation talent. Um, and we are very confident of and bullish about our betting process. And the fact that year after year, we were seeing upwards of a $20 million funding gap between our black applicants and white applicants was a glaring signal that's, uh, that's, that inequities were alive and well in our funding landscape. So we wanted to just sort of paint a finer point and provide a deeper research analysis of that um, that uh, phenomenon that we were seeing as practitioners, concerned practitioners. So with our partners at BridgeBand, they did a deep dive into our fellow community and um, really were able to report out some staggering findings looking at our, our Black fellows trajectory versus our white fellows. And what they found was that our Black fellows were raising 24% less revenue than their white counterparts. But when you looked exclusively at unrestricted net assets, it was 76% less. Um, and that was glaring and concerning enough. But when you um, really start to dig in and think about, well, what does that mean when the unrestricted net assets were so significantly underfunded for Black entrepreneurs in our network versus the white ones? It was really a proxy for lack of trust in these leaders. And when you think about these unrestricted net assets as a pool of money that allows you to dream and grow and strategize, it really did put a finer point on the headwinds that these leaders of color were facing relative to their white counterparts. And I would say that these disparities have been, um, um, uh, you know, there are other organizations that have reported the same disparities. It happens um, regardless of the size of the organization. It is terribly intersectional, meaning that um, women of color in particular um, face um, even stiffer headwinds. Um, indigenous and proximate leaders in global settings face these same sorts of headwinds. Um, so then the question becomes, well, what do you do about it? And one of the uh, responses after this um, groundbreaking research was this notion of, could you start to um, partner um, with capital providers, with folks who sit in seats of privilege um, to start to break those structural inequities and really sort of ask um, partners across sector to begin to show up as allies in, in new and meaningful ways. And that leads me directly into our new partnership with Goldman Sachs, the One Million Black Women Initiative, uh, which we're thrilled to be a part of. Um, I think Goldman Sachs, like many others, have recognized sort of the um, the um, the real tragedy, um, economic tragedy, moral tragedy, social tragedy of underinvesting in a key stakeholder group in um, our society, Black women. Um, you know, Black women were heralded as heroines of our um, election um, cycle of last year. But when you look at many of the disparities confronting African-American women like me, um, the disparities tell a very different tale, being locked out of um, healthcare um, opportunities that literally have life and death implications, um, lacking access to um, financial on-ramps that are vital um, to closing the racial wealth gap that um, confronts so many African-American families. So Goldman Sachs is really taking a soup-to-nuts approach about how they partner with various um, enterprises to start to tackle this very complicated um, structural um, uh, this structural issue um, and really unlock the potential of Black women. And so um, we're thrilled to uh, begin this process where we're going to identify a cohort of African-American social innovators in whom we will invest, 
um, to help them launch and grow their enterprises, knowing that our friends and partners at Goldman Sachs will be walking um, alongside them to help them grow and scale their enterprises. Um, and it's a wonderful way for Goldman to stand as allies in this work, um, but also really engage their talented workforce to uh, support the women entrepreneurs that we're going to have the honor of working with over the next couple of years. So Catherine, we couldn't be more thrilled. That is such, a, such an exciting and important work uh, and, and probably a great point for us. I'm going to say pause for us to pause and we will wrap <laughs> up this podcast, but I hope we can continue the discussion because uh, you're doing such important work. And, you know, Echoing Green just has really remarkable expertise uh, around growing entrepreneurs in, in such an important way. It, it's thought-provoking for me as a professor. It's thought-provoking to think about in the context of any any efforts to support entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm sure there's, there's uh, for those who are not in the social impact space, there's a lot to learn. Certainly there's, there's a ton to learn for those of us who are in the social impact space from the work that Echoing Green and you have been doing for so many years. So uh, thank you so much. Fantastic to talk with you. And uh, as I said, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's been a real pleasure and honor. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.